This podcast is brought to you by DIA, the trusted global neutral forum for healthcare product development professionals. DIA, driving insights to action. For years, if not decades, clinical trials and eligible patients have had trouble finding each other. This problem isn't exactly news, but it's no less of a problem. Two quick examples. In 2017, the Tufts Center for the Study of Drug Development released their results of their survey of 2,000 nurses and physicians, primarily in the U.S. and Europe. 70% of the responding nurses and 90% of the responding physicians claim to be either somewhat or very comfortable discussing clinical trials with their patients, but less than one-half of 1% of them combined refer patients to clinical trials. In a more recent study by a life sciences business strategy firm, responding companies reported that more than 80% of their clinical trials failed to recruit enough participants on time, and that phase three and phase four trials have a combined average enrollment efficiency below 40%. Clinical research has a people problem. How are people in the clinical research industry working to solve it? I am Chris M. Slowecki, Senior Digital Copy Editor for DIA. Today we welcome Ram Yeleswarapu, Senior Vice President, Enterprise Clinical Solutions at Indigene. Ram has a special focus on clinical digital transformation initiatives across large pharmaceutical and emerging biotechnology companies, and he joins us today to discuss some solutions to this problem. Thank you for joining us today, Ram, and welcome. Thank you, Chris. I greatly appreciate this opportunity to speak with you today, and I'm looking forward to this session. Ram, everyone agrees that this is a big problem, but like any big problem, we can break it down into smaller components. So let's focus on one specific issue here, how patients and clinical trials can find each other. And another way to say that is patient recruitment. Can we ask you to provide some examples of how clinical research can use data and technology to help clinical trials find and connect with patients who are eligible to participate in them? I am pretty happy to kind of share a few examples of how data and technology could be leveraged to better help in recruiting the right patients for clinical trials. But before I kind of go into the examples, I must say that this is an ongoing problem and unmet need in the industry. The typical recruitment of patients happens based on historical data at research sites based on past performance. And that usually does not help given the competitive nature and the number of competing clinical trials that are trying to reach out to the same cohort of patients. And hence, using insights from data and technology in a smarter manner is a complementary strategy. So let me tell you exactly how by enumerating a few examples here. Thank you for that introduction. So going into one of our first examples, we leverage artificial intelligence and machine learning-based geofenced strategy to target the interested participants in a given radius off of a clinical research site. So we kind of reached out to this audience based on behavioral patterns, in a very hyper-local manner using real-time location data, demographics, and user content preferences. This was to propel, of course, trial recruitment for an ongoing phase three trial for cytokine storm, 
which is a life-threatening systemic inflammatory syndrome involving elevated levels of circulating cytokines. So essentially during the time of the COVID-19 pandemic, we were called upon by one of our clients who were looking to re recruit several hundred patients over and above what they had targeted and they were falling short of their recruitment rates. So we went and did a complete geofence strategy of the sites that they were looking to recruit patients for. And within a certain radius of those sites, we created hyperlocal campaigns and ran those campaigns using AIML technologies. And that really helped us drive the outcomes of the project where we were able to drive over 17,000 weekly unique visitors to the trial landing page. And from those visits, we were able to screen and get down to about 463 interested participants who qualified for secondary screening. And so this data point essentially represents a 37% or so conversion from the website visit to secondary qualification, which is kind of 50% more than industry practice, to be honest. So that's example number one. Going on to a second example, a Japanese pharmaceutical company leveraged our hybrid nurse concierge system for screening. What we mean by this is it's a digital plus human-based approach for recruitment. And that showed a 40% improvement in both top of the funnel and the final enrollment. Now, just to break it down a bit, understanding the study protocol, designing the right set of IRB-approved primary and secondary questions for screening and qualifying or disqualifying the participants, that's the first step, Chris. The primary screener as a first step is the digital website-driven experience. And that's followed by a handoff to a nurse concierge team for a phone call or a chat based on secondary screening. This kind of process or a workflow of a human touch to a digital screening process is empathetic to the patients who are in many cases suffering, they have a pain or an ailment, and speaking with a nurse concierge helps alleviate some of this. It also allows them to understand the trials better, the risk aspect of it, the benefits aspect of it, so on and so forth. And then a seamless and a timely handoff from primary to the secondary screening process, from digital to a human touch of the nurse concierge system, is what made the difference on the conversion rates, leading to a better enrollment. So in this instance, we were able to not just do the primary screening, but hand off the interested participants to a secondary screening nurse concierge system. And then on top of it, we also used an auto site visit scheduler for faster enrollment and an improved adherence. What do I mean by that? Essentially, the time difference between or the lag between the first time a participant expresses an interest to the time someone reaches out to them for a conversation and keeping that interest active. And while they're interested, if they end up qualifying for the trial, handing off to the research site immediately by scheduling time and an appointment with the study team at the research site, the lag time between each of these phases, Chris, has to be reduced. And what we found is that the more the elapsed time between each stage, the exponential drop in terms of participants dropping off and not necessarily leading to randomization on the trial. So just to kind of recap, 16% conversion rate was accomplished with about 400 plus qualified patients. A 16% conversion is significant, actually. It's an 85% jump from industry standards of about 8 to 9%. And we had about 2,500 plus primary screening qualified patients. And ultimately, as I said, we delivered the recruitment numbers to this Japanese pharmaceutical company. My last example is about an oncology biotech company. They wanted assistance in trial design optimization. 
running a feasibility, country feasibility, site feasibility within countries, and so on and so forth. And also wanted a recruitment forecasting engine or a model to be built. So we were able to assist them around building a clinical site prioritization dashboard where we ranked the sites based on parameters like therapeutic experience, current and active trial status, competing trials, whether the sites themselves were large hospitals or small hospitals. And the reason it's important to mention this, Chris, is larger hospitals and academic institutions take much longer for contracting. And that typically induces delays in the trial startup. So the choice of sites has to be made very judicious in the selection process by the pharmaceutical and biotech companies. So in this instance, we were able to kind of do all of the site selection carefully, and we prepared a bespoke trial recruitment plan that worked very well for the phase two metastatic non-small cell lung cancer study. Ram, I want to thank you, first of all, for such detail. And I just want to confirm, there's a striking statistic in that second example, a 85% jump above the industry standard? Yes, Chris. That's striking. That's remarkable. Absolutely. So I, as I said, typically recruitment rates at these sites is based on past data, historic data. But today, the use of tools and techniques to mine the data, the electronic health record data, the clinical data, the molecular data, all that's available, allows us to look at sites in a much more, and patient cohorts in a much more precise manner. And our ability to then use the workflow the way I explained, which is primary screening followed by nurse concierge system, that human touch actually really helped us do a significant amount of conversion. And we now see that this has become a recipe for success, if you will, Chris. Excellent. Thank you. I appreciate you you mentioning specifically data because that's the focus of my next question. There's clinical site data, but also there's a lot of patient data involved. And I'm thinking specifically of the GDPR in Europe, the General Data Protection Regulation. Do some of these methodologies raise concerns with legislation or other data related data privacy issues? So Chris, while the concern is a valid one, and we understand the concern, especially these days with social media companies under tremendous scrutiny, as we all know. But we also believe that patient identity and the protected healthcare information, as it's called, PHI, that should be absolutely protected without any compromise. But there are ways and means to get to these patients without elevating their concerns, Chris. And that can be done by the following mechanisms. It's important, we believe, that patient consent is vital. And consenting could be followed up with a double opt-in. What do I mean by that? Beyond, for example, the patient, he or she visiting a trial website and clicking on a link there and accepting that they are consenting that their activity on that website will be made available or at least the information they share would be visible and available to someone. But beyond that, as soon as they confirm, they also get an email beyond the clicking on the website and navigating the website, they get an email asking them for explicit permission that they are opting in is a way to ensure that the patient has consented and permitted. So abiding with local laws, seeking consent, abiding with the local laws, operating under the framework of the platforms that we use, these are all important items. And the objective here, Chris, is to help the patients and not necessarily look at them as consumers in the retail sense, for example, where marketers are trying to sell more and more to a given retail consumer. The intent here is completely different. These are patients in need of help. 
And by just seeking their permission and their consent, we're able to alleviate their concerns, protect their healthcare information, and ensure we only act post their consent, Chris. That's the way to obviate some of these concerns. That's just an excellent answer, Ram. Thank you very much. We've been discussing, for the most part, drug development. Have you seen examples of these technologies in device development? Yes, Chris. The answer is yes. It's not just pharmaceutical and biotech pursuing drug development, but also medical device companies are using similar strategies. The ultimate goal, Chris, is to understand patients better. Insights from patients during clinical development of drugs and devices, and of course, eventual commercialization of getting to patients and prescribers appears to be a common connect among both drug companies and device companies. So understanding the patients better, understanding their conditions better, whether it's for drugs or devices or even combination therapies, there are devices with drug inside them, for example. This is not restricted to only drugs. Medical device companies are equally using this to understand the patient community, understand how best they can reach out to them to assist them how to enlist them into clinical trials for medical devices. So yes, it is uh, cutting across all segments, Chris. Thank you, Ram. Both the device and the drug and the combination products industry, this is very heavily regulated industries. And change, even change for the better, isn't always easy to implement. As this new wave of data and technology ripples through clinical research, How important is change management? And does the term change management even take on a different meaning in this context? It's a great question, Chris. So the way we look at this, and you phrased it saying it's a heavily regulated industry, and that's perhaps a key to the fact that we're dealing with patient safety and patients' lives here. So in understanding that digital transformation using data and technology and undergoing a digital transformation has its benefits and it can immensely bring value to the stakeholders of the ecosystem. It is also important that it has to be looked at carefully and hence change is certainly imminent, but it will perhaps be slower for this particular industry. And for all the reasons that I just mentioned, you're dealing with patients' lives here, safety of patients is paramount here. So if you keep that in mind, the regulatory bodies are absolutely in support. We've seen that post-pandemic, the regulatory bodies have supported use of technology and use of insights to be able to kind of enroll patients more effectively and efficiently into trials. Also work with patients in a decentralized manner. In other words, without inconveniencing patients, if they do not need to be at a research site for the entire duration of the clinical trial, that's perfectly acceptable as well. So the regulatory bodies have stepped up and are responding to change. Industry is absorbing change. It's albeit slow. But the way we look at this is, if you deconstruct a clinical trial from start to finish, change can be impacted in smaller fragments. You take each piece of this clinical trial continuum from start to finish in smaller fragments, and that impactful change then sets in a degree of comfort and confidence and builds trust in the industry over a period of time. But by doing this, while change is inevitable, to follow through and enable a change management along this pathway can also be made more effective, Chris. You know, that's a wonderful answer, Ram, because... There's a great old expression that you just brought to mind. What's the best way to eat an elephant? 
one bite at a time. Yeah, absolutely, Chris. I think you're right. The whole thing looks complicated and it is a conservative space to start with, highly regulated, as you said. And it's very process driven, Chris. But this kind of a thing can be broken down into more convenient steps. And comfort can set in over a period of time by taking a stepwise approach. And by doing that, change can be more impactful across the entire continuum. But your analogy there, I fully understand. And I think that's exactly what it is. Our ending question is about the end user. Uh, Ram, you provided some wonderful examples of how data technology, data and technology, are increasing the efficiency of clinical research for the researchers. What have you heard from patients? I'd like to give you the opportunity to share what you've heard from patients and what they think about this new stream, this new way of business. Indigene is data and technology-driven company. We are a healthcare technology solution and services provider. And as part of what we do, and as part of our research methodology, Chris, we constantly reach out to clinical research sites. We reach out to sponsors who are the pharmaceutical and biotech and medical device companies, as well as patients, by the way. So just to let you know and give you a context, ever since the pandemic happened, I think starting in early 2021, through now, we've been running uh, surveys on a global basis. And our entire quest is to understand the state of digital adoption, which we call DX, lower X. And then we call CX, which is the customer experience. So these are surveys that we have successfully run several times since early 2021. And we intend to continue to do this. Based on these surveys, based on the data, and the inputs we gathered and looking at the summarized statistics and inputs, patients are actually elated. They're pretty happy about the fact that if they're given an opportunity for absorbing some of this content, data-driven strategy, using technology, so on and so forth, it's a welcome change. And the reason I say this is very clear. It has been understood by us that if a patient has a need and an interest to participate in a clinical trial, if their burden of visiting the research site, sometimes inconveniencing them to travel long distances, for example, or impacts the quality of life or the family gets impacted as a consequence of these long distance research sites that they can avoid, but rather stay home and have a nurse practitioner visit them or a phlebotomist for a blood draw, or they can simply do a televisit with their principal investigator. These are techniques that are certainly available using technology these days. And so the feedback is positive. And I've just gave you an example of how receptive patients are. And as long as you explain the clinical trial, the risk benefit aspect of them being involved in clinical trials, and then making the technology easy and simple to use. So it's a very positive feedback is our consensus at this point in time, Chris. Ram, is there anything else you'd like to say there may be some additional points, Chris, in terms of statistics of patients responding positively. So my way of using that example was to say that patients are clearly enjoying the data and digital experience. Post-consent, they're okay to be contacted. And use of technology and uh, reducing the burden and elevating their quality of life. These are all very positive inputs that we have obtained. Ram, I can't thank you enough. Your answers provided a great level of detail, but yet an excellent overview of the state of this still evolving art. On behalf of all of our listeners, Ram, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. 
Chris, I thank you very much for this opportunity to speak with you and uh, look forward to kind of uh, doing more of these sessions with you. For DIA, I am Chris M. Slowecki. To learn more about this topic, visit us online at diaglobal.org.